Well, the dramatic improvement in survival of congenital heart disease over the past decade has resulted in physicians now having to deal with potential consequences derived from the natural progression of the disease, late sequelae of previous interventions and acquired conditions. And specifically, atrial arrhythmia are the most common complication in adults with congenital heart disease, and they are the leading cause of morbidity and hospital admissions. Hello and welcome everyone to the podcast for European Cardiology, Cardiology Review with Radcliffe. My name is Irene Martín de Miguel. I'm a cardiologist from Madrid, Spain, and now I'm undergoing my congenital heart disease fellowship at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, US. I am going to discuss our published review entitled Atrial Fibrillation and Congenital Heart Disease, which is available online. In this review, my co-author Pablo Avila and I provide an overview of the current knowledge on atrial fibrillation and congenital heart disease, with a special focus on the differences with the non-congenital heart disease population. My aim for this podcast is to discuss the topic, highlight the most relevant aspects, and provide practical recommendations for your everyday practice. Well, the dramatic improvement in survival of congenital heart disease over the past decade has resulted in physicians now having to deal with potential consequences derived from the natural progression of the disease, late sequelae of previous interventions and acquired conditions. And specifically, atrial arrhythmia are the most common complication in adults with congenital heart disease, and they are the leading cause of morbidity and hospital admissions. It is important to take into consideration, and this is the first point I wanted to highlight, that although intraatrial reentrant tachycardia are the most common arrhythmia in congenital heart disease, as patients age, the incidence of atrial fibrillation increases, and it actually surpasses the prevalence of intraatrial reentrant tachycardia over the age of 50 years. Patients with more complex congenital heart disease and higher number of surgeries are more prone to developing intraatrial reentrant tachycardia. On the contrary, simpler lesions, we would find a similar prevalence of both intraatrial reentrant tachycardia and atrial fibrillation. And to remember, there are certain conditions which are more prone to developing atrial fibrillations. This could be atrial and atrioventricular septal defects, Ipsen anomaly, tetralogy of fallow, univentricular hearts, left-sided obstructive lesions, and pre-existing pulmonary hypertension. The second important point I wanted to highlight relates to the clinical impact of atrial fibrillation. Well, there are three main potential consequences to remember, heart failure, stroke, and mortality. With regards, regards to heart failure, this is the most frequent complication. An estimated prevalence is about 11% in young congenital heart disease patients. And most importantly, it sharply increases with age and up to 11 times compared to patients with congenital heart disease and no atrial fibrillation. Also, heart failure in turns increases the risk of atrial arrhythmia recurrence. And it has also been consistently the strongest independent predictor of ischemic stroke in this population, especially in young patients and in the first year after onset. The second consequence, stroke, as you all know, is a dramatic and disabling consequence and neurological sequelae 
may be permanent in up to 25% of cases. Atrial fibrillation, heart failure, and traditional cardiovascular risk factors independently contribute to this increased risk. And if we ask ourselves, who are the patients with the highest cumulative incidence? Well, those correspond with the most complex conditions, such as congenital, such as fontan circulation or cyanotic conditions. But also patients with left-sided lesions and uncorrected pre-tricuspid left to right chance are also particularly at risk. Regarding mortality, previous data show a 55% increase in the risk of overall mortality in patients with congenital heart disease and atrial arrhythmia. What are the potential causes of death related to atrial fibrillation? Well, of course, this might relate to thromboembolic events, but also atrial fibrillation as other atrial arrhythmia may contribute to sudden death. And this is especially the case in patients with impaired systolic function or single ventricle physiology. In these cases, fast ventricular rates may provoke ischemia because of a mismatch in oxygen demand and supply, which can induce ischemia-related ventricular arrhythmia. Another important thing to take into consideration is pattern of atrial fibrillation in congenital heart disease. It is true that most patients are going to present with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. However, evolution to persistent or permanent form is not, is not uncommon. So how can we identify patients at higher risk for persistent or, or permanent atrial fibrillation? Well, previous data indicate that these patients had usually more complex congenital heart disease they develop atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation at younger ages, and approximately one-third had coexistence of other regular atrial arrhythmia, which generally preceded atrial fibrillation. Because of the high prevalence of atrial septal defects, I wanted to comment briefly on this. And prevalence in this congenital condition of atrial fibrillation is high. And very important, despite defect closure, risk of atrial fibrillation remains higher than in a non-congenital heart disease matched population. Early closure, either surgical or percutaneous, reduces this risk compared to like late repair. I will now like to discuss with you management of these patients, strengthening key features on the congenital heart disease population. First, I would like to focus on acute management. The first important consideration is that restoration of sinus rhythm should be considered the first option of the, in, in the majority of cases. Why? Because negative hemodynamic effect of atrial fibrillation in congenital heart disease patients might be very important, and loss of atrial, atrial ventricular synchrony and, if present, fast ventricular rate may deteriorate patients clinically sig very significantly. Of course, Hemodynamically unstable patients must undergo urgent electrical cardioversion. But in the non-urgent urgent setting, attention should be paid to three aspects. First, anticoagulation status. Second, duration of the episode. And third, complexity of congenital heart disease and additional high-risk conditions. I wanted to highlight data from non-congenital heart disease patients where it is suggested that patients with predisposing factors, and that means a CHAD-BAS score greater or equal than two, have an increased risk of thromboembolic events, especially delaying the cardioversion 
more than 12 hours after atrial fibrillation onset. Period procedural anticoagulation in this context reduced the risk by 82%. So, therefore, and accordingly, in high-risk congenital heart disease patients, chances of a GIL echocardiogram or three weeks of, of anticoagulation prior to cardioversion is recommended. And the question is, who are these high-risk patients? Well, of course, there will be those with mechanical prosthesis, moderate to severe atrioventricular stenosis, prior history of thromboembolism, moderate to severe congenital heart disease, or if atrial fibrillation onset was more than 12 hours prior to medical contact and patients had chat vasc greater or equal than two. With respect to long-term management, both the American and European consensus documents for arrhythmia management in adults with congenital heart disease advocate rhythm control strategy as the initial approach, considering the deleterious effects of losing sinus rhythm. However, before a definitive management strategy is established, reversible causes of atrial fibrillation should be sought and treated when feasible. This could be residual shunts, obstructive or regurgitant lesions, or maybe myocardial ischemia. Once long-term rhythm control therapy has been established, choice of antiarrhythmic drug should be performed carefully. And aspects such as ventricular function, conduction disturbances, pregnancy, or comorbidity should be taken into consideration. Which antiarrhythmic drug should be chosen? Well, first, we have class one antiarrhythmic agents, which are reserved for simple or moderate congenital heart disease without significant ventricular dysfunction or hypertrophy and without myocardial scarring. If we move forward to class three agents, these seem to be more effective in maintaining sinus rhythm and preventing recurrences. One option should be amiodarone. However, you know amiodarone should be avoided in young patients because of common side effects. Sotalone may be an alternative and it has proven to control at least partially refractory tachyarrhythmia. However, because of its proarrhythmic effects, it should be not used in patients with significant systolic dysfunction. Our last option, dofetilide, is possible unless contraindications, but is not available in Europe. The disappointing results and limitations of antiarrhythmic drugs, together with the significant improvement of technical aspects of ablation procedures has resulted in, expanding, in an expanding use of these techniques in congenital heart disease patients. However, and despite being considered a first-line treatment for the rest of atrial arrhythmia, it should be highlighted that the increased complexity of pulmonary vein ablation, the modest results, the limited experience and peculiarities of congenital heart disease patients has turned into a 2BC recommendation in latest guidelines. So catheter pulmonary vein ablation may be performed in patients with drug refractory atrial fibrillation. Very important, this should all be performed in centers who have experience both in atrial fibrillation ablation and congenital heart disease management. I wanted to highlight several important aspects that must be taken into account regarding pulmonary vein ablation in patients with congenital heart disease. First of all, pre-procedural planning. This is mandatory to minimize complications 
and maximize access. Documentation of arrhythmia to rule out other atrial arrhythmias. Review of individual anatomic, anatomical features with multimodality imaging. And of course, careful evaluation of vascular accesses is of utmost importance. Transeptal puncture may pose addition, additional challenges here. Why? Well, patients might, ha might have a distorted anatomy, but also there might be presence of atrial surgical patches or closure devices. The second aspect relates to the procedure itself. Evidence mostly comes from radiofrequency catheter ablation. And procedures should be performed using 3D mapping technology and irrigated tip catheters for ablation to maximize success. And in regards to that, success rates uh, at one year with or without antiremic drugs range approximately from 35 to 85%. Accordingly, in reduced, especially in reduced procedures, one should target additional ablation places beyond the pulmonary veins. This could include atrial roof, mitral cavotricuspid to pulmonary vein insulation isomers, or non-pulmonary vein triggers. The last aspect regarding long-term management who should be taken into consideration, and that is very important, is anticoagulation. Well, here again, certain aspects should be emphasized. First is to know that standard score, scores such as CHADVASC and CHADS that guide or anticoagulation in general patients do not consider congenital heart disease and have not been validated in this specific population. They do not appear to correctly identify patients at increased risk for embolic events. On the contrary, complexity of congenital heart disease has proven to be an independent risk factor for thromboembolic events. So therefore, current recommendations both advocate taking into account complexity of congenital heart disease and these traditional scores. To summarize, we would say patients with moderate or complex congenital heart disease and sustain or recurrent atrial fibrillation should be on long-term anticoagulation, regardless of CHADVAS score. For patients with simple forms of congenital heart disease and without valvular prosthesis, the decision of anticoagulation should be based on CHADVASC and Haslet scores. Lastly, we would like to know probably if we can treat our patients with non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants, NOACs, or not. Well, um, studies regarding this have, have, have shown that NOACs are safe in congenital heart disease populations, and only three groups have to be excluded from this kind, kind of drugs. This corresponds to fontan circulation, cyanotic conditions, and mechanical prosthetic valves or significant mitral stenosis. I'm coming to the end of my podcast, and I would like to finish this podcast with several take-home messages. It is certain that as the congenital heart disease population, population continues to age, it is likely that atrial fibrillation prevalence and other arrhythmic issues will continue to increase in the next decades. Strategies for diagnosis and correction of risk factors and identification of particularly vulnerable patients are necessary. 
research to shed light on predictors of success or failure of ablation in order to detect appropriate candidates for ablation is warranted. Studies comparing anticoagulation strategies in the congenital heart disease populations are necessary. Accordingly, if it, it is of utmost importance that all physicians involved in the care of patients with congenital heart disease, including pediatric and oral cardiologists, and electrophysiologists with expertise in congenital heart disease, collaborate to ensure appropriate patient management. I would like to thank you all for enjoying me for this. Um, during this podcast. I hope you found the discussion interesting. I would also like to thank Radcliffe for allowing me this opportunity. I hope to see you soon on the ECR podcast channel. Goodbye. <laughs>